Hello, I'm Lubin Rusev, and welcome to the first episode of the Bristol Law Review podcast. This series is brought to you by the Bristol Law School's official student-led law journal, the Bristol Law Review. Now, as many of you may know, I'm very much into the idea of taking over the world, and I have heard a lot about how effective this populism thing is at doing that, hence I wanted to start this podcast series with three episodes exploring what populism is. Today, I'm joined by Robert Greeley, lecturer of constitutional law at the University of Bristol. In this episode, we will be introduced to populism and learn what all the fuss is about. We will then build on this in the following episodes, which will explore populism's implications on our constitutional and legal orders. So, without further ado, hello, Robert. Do you want to start us off by describing what populism is? What makes it different to any other form of democratic engagement? Yeah, so populism has become a bit of a buzzword in modern political discourse. And so it's quite natural that we uh, wonder sometimes what it actually means. It can be quite confusing because some people might say, isn't all democratic politics inherently populist? And there are people out there that say, for example, that populism is a good thing. It's something that they want to be described as. But for others, populism is kind of like an insult. So it's important that we kind of distinguish what populism is. And populism is should not be confused with popular engagement in politics, nor should it be confused with, you know, kind of rhetorical terms that politicians sometimes invoke casually. It's a much more distinct phenomena that has emerged within liberal democracies. So at its core, populism is essentially a political ideology. And what a political ideology does is it guides how political actors understand the world and respond to changes in their society. So it provides them with like a blueprint or a map to help them process their world because the world is complicated. So this map simplifies things down. So what populism does as an ideology is it presents political communities as being divided into two antagonistic groups. So the first group is the people. And the people are in competition with the elite. Now, for populism, the purpose of democratic politics is to ensure that the people prevail over the elite. So this is a, a good starting point. Populism means the people versus the elite. But a cynic might say, well, isn't that still all democratic politics? After all, there is always somebody in power. There's always somebody out of power. You know, on Twitter, people get angry. They always think that they are the, uh, the people, the true people, and that their enemies are the elite. That happens all the time. How do we distinguish that from actual populism? Well, I think if we begin to think about what we mean by the people and by who are the elite, we get a better sense of how populism can be distinguished from other types of political discourse. So let's just start then, I guess, by defining who the people are. So um, the people are not meant to be just voters or the whole of the political community, the body politique of the nation. What is actually meant by the people is a specific part of the overall population. 
the people are whoever is in that specific part and anyone who is not in that specific part is not the people. So, for example, in the UK in 2016, 46 million people were registered to vote in the 2016 Brexit referendum. And we know from the results of that referendum that 52% of those people voted, that did vote, voted to leave the EU and 48 voted to remain in the EU. Now, on the night, Nigel Farage, the leader of UKIP, declared that the result was a victory for the real people, which implies that this 52% are the people and everyone who wasn't in that 52% was not part of the people. They were not part of that political community in his mind. So what we're saying here is that it's fundamentally not the same as saying that the majority of the people voted for something. This is saying that actually the people are a specific group rather than a majority. So populists tend to curate the image of a, a real people based upon a combination of political characteristics, mainly based upon political power, economic status and race. So the people are the ones who should govern, not the existing political representatives. The people are normally presented as hardworking, industrious, compared to the elite who are often presented as uh, lazy or only in it for themselves, only working to benefit themselves. Sometimes the people are presented as the, the true natives uh, of a country, a particular ethnicity or a particular religious background or sexual preference is what distinguishes the people. And what populists, very effective populists, will normally do is they'll try to combine these different understandings of the people to paint an image of the true people who are permit, uh, who are pitted against both those above and below them. So, for example, a populist might present the true people in conflict with both the wealthy elite who support immigration and then obviously migrants who might be of a lower uh, economic class below them. And this allows them to present the people as hardworking natives of the nation against uh, a corrupt elite who might be seeking to replace them with foreign labor. Yes, building on what you said, I just wanted to add that I think that a central differentiating factor in populism is where populists get their legitimacy, whereas other democratic parties gain their legitimacy from democratic elections or the constitutional traditions from which the institutions arise. Populists gain their legitimacy from what is termed as this ill-defined people. They do not care about the constitutional order but use this people, which in many cases is not the majority of the population, in order to undermine the democratic institutions, which are kind of holding them back. In the meantime, populists also seem to have different goals. They do not necessarily wish to gain power in order to implement policies, but pick policies which would get them into power. They are appealing to what they believe the people want in order to gain power. They do not care about the constitutional order. What do you think? 
Yeah, well, I mean, let's go back to the, the, the first point about where they, they where a state normally gets its legitimacy from. The state gets its legitimacy from a range of different sources, but one of the most important ones within a liberal democracy is normally through the consent of the people, which is normally through democratic elections, where a majority of people choose to elect in these people to run the state. But it also gets it through tolerating dissent, tolerating the idea that there will be losers in democratic contests and that these losers don't have to simply, you know, uh, go away. They are allowed to continue to campaign. So a liberal democracy gets its source not just from the majority, but also gets its source from retaining the consent of the minority that they sometimes call it loser's consent. And so when the populists invoke the idea of the people, they kind of get rid of the idea of loser's consent and they kind of emphasize the majoritarian aspects to an extreme level. Um, but to be clear, the people don't have to always be the majority. Um, so often there have been democratic contests where populists have lost and they will say, well, you know, the people, they weren't, they weren't represented. The game was rigged against us even though a majority voted maybe not in to support them. So populists tend to try to curate an image of the people that isn't the same as the majority per se, until eventually they get into power, in which case then the people become a very extreme form of majority that's used to justify and legitimate lots of actions carried out by the populists. I also wanted to ask you about the balancing act that populists need to play between the elite and the people. Of course, the populace needs the elite to gain and retain power. How do they play this balancing act? Yeah, so let's, let's talk about then who is the elite, because that kind of helps contextualize some of uh, my answers to, to that question. So first of all, obviously the elite are obviously not the people, but that doesn't really narrow it down. Um, and it can be quite difficult in populist discourse to understand who the elite is. The elite is always almost a moving target. It can change characteristics based upon what the populists need it to be. So, but there are usual candidates. So traditionally, it can be the media. But when we say the media, it'll probably what we mean is populists will see sections of the media as the elite, and those sections of the media, for example, that support them they will not be part of that elite. So there are newspapers, for example, that will support populist causes. And when populists attack the elite, as media elites, I should say, they will normally say, well, it's not them. They're obviously on our side. They're the true newspaper of the people. They can also attack institutions. They present, you know, institutions and individuals who occupy those institutions as uh, part of the elite. So this will normally be like socioeconomic groups for example, universities, companies, or other political organizations. Judges are also traditionally seen as part of the elite, um, particularly when they promote human rights or act against the interests of the government. Um, and then there's obviously the supranational elites, which are the EU, NGOs, other countries, etc. Now, populists, aren't actually opposed to the elites as long as they become the elites. So uh, populists 
are quite happy taking all these offices, taking control of all these institutions, these media organizations, and to the point where they are essentially the elite of that country. And they're quite happy with that. It's not really about um, being anti-elitist, it's about becoming the elite. So as long as they're the elite, they're fine with it, because when they're the elite, they're all, every action they do is carried out in the name of the people. So that's fine. Whereas when anyone else is in control of these institutions, these organizations, etc., they're not doing it for the people, they're doing it for themselves. So populists will try to win favor with some existing elites to help their campaign. So this can be obviously financial backers, it can be media organizations, um, and it can be, you know, political organizations. So they do need to sometimes create bridges, but what they will do is they will carefully distinguish between those that support the people and those that don't. And if they don't support the people, then they're the elite. If they support the people, they're just organizations that are supporting the true people and therefore allies of the people. Now, I wanted to move on to exploring the differences between left-wing and right-wing populism. I believe that it is a very malleable distinction that is difficult to make and remains difficult on multiple scales. Now, looking at the recent French elections, for example, there are many similarities between the far left and far right in terms of policies. Both talked about ignoring EU law. Both were skeptical of liberal economic modernization. Both pushed for increases in welfare and worker protections. But there are differences, such as stances on green energy and the focus on immigration. What is the difference between left and right-wing populism? Okay. Well, I think it goes back to the idea that populism is itself an ideology, but it's a thin ideology. And what I mean by a thin ideology is that uh, ideologies work their best when they can show political actors how to understand and respond to their world. They provide often clear answers to political problems. So if a left-wing ideologies, normally the answer will be, you know, promote equality, use the state, etc., nationalize services. Whereas to the right, those answers might be, for example, defend the status quo. Does this change? Maybe if you combine it with neoliberal economics, it might be low taxation. So that's the kind of basics of what we call thick ideologies. Thick ideologies provide answers to distinct political questions. Populism, on the other hand, is a thin ideology in the sense that it doesn't provide any concrete answers to politicians. So what populists have to do is they have to integrate into populism as an ideology, bits of thicker ideologies. And this is where you can get populists that combine, let's say, aspects of social conservatism with um, you know, left-wing economic policy, because they can integrate that into the morphology of a thin ideology like populism. So left-wing populism is genuinely found um, it presents the people as hardworking, industrious, and it says that the elites are normally economic organizations. So, you know, the World Bank, um, maybe central banks, maybe it's the EU. And what they say is these elites have essentially worked together to frustrate uh, the need.
needs of the labor market and frustrate workers' rights. And they're profiting while the real people who do all the hard work, they don't see any of the profits. So they're quite interested in economic transformation. So left-wing populists can include um, people such as the Occupy movement in the United States, Podemos in Spain. And essentially what their goal is, is to take power and use the power of the state to begin to dismantle some of those economic organizations. And that might mean, for example, ignoring EU law. It might mean um, state subsidies that run into conflict with uh, international obligations. It might mean dismantling central banks, taxing private companies, um, maybe nationalizing private companies. So those are the kind of characteristics we see with uh, left-wing populists. The true people are workers, and the elite are normally uh, the wealthy financial organizations and companies of the state. And right-wing populism? So right-wing populism is a little more difficult to pin down, and that's partly because right-wing populism uh, obviously incorporates aspects of conservatism as an ideology. Now, conservatism is essentially an ideology concerned with uh, change. It's about promoting tradition and being skeptical of human rational thoughts that promotes change. It's not completely opposed to change, and it will accept that a society in order to continue to prosper may need to change, but it will normally resist that to a great degree. Now, what we see with kind of right-wing populists is they incorporate aspects of conservatism to say that the people are under attack from a change that's being promoted by an elite. And that change could be the product of globalization. It could be migration. It could be the dismantling of traditional family values. And so those tend to be the characteristics we see with right-wing conservatives. There is a true people who are under attack from a change that's being advanced by an elite. Next, I just wanted to explore whether populism is necessarily a bad thing. I've come to have negative predispositions and preconceptions about populism, but can it be a good thing or worn as a badge of honor? Well, whether it can be worn as a badge of honor is obviously dependent on the political actor and the, the context they're in. But we can talk about whether populism is a good or bad thing. And I think the answer is it all depends on what populists do when they get in power. I think populism can be uh, a good thing in that it can help bring political issues to the fore that have been traditionally neglected or suppressed by the existing political parties. So political parties can sometimes work like cartels, where they work together to suppress certain changes or to keep certain issues off the agenda. So, you know, we've seen in many nations across the world, political parties have rightly and wrongly begun to converge around a set of often quite very similar political policies regarding the economy, migration and globalization. And in doing so, governments of both left-wing and right-wing colours have told voters time and time again that there is no alternative to this. You have to accept globalisation. You have to accept 
um, this economic status. And in doing so, what they've done is they've closed the doors down to debates, and they sometimes inevitably talk in sometimes they have inadvertently talked down to voters, which has made voters angry. They've taken credit for policies that they've been successful for, but when policies have gone wrong, they have normally kind of blamed it on other organizations, the EU, uh, the World Bank, et cetera, judges. And that has kind of um, led to a culture of passing the book. Now, what populism can be understood as, as Cass Muddle has said, the populist surge is an illiberal democratic response to what could be seen as decades of illiberal democratic politics. So populists have had an important role in voicing people's concerns. I say people, I mean, I don't mean the people that populists do, I mean, just in general. Um, they've also highlighted growing inequalities and corporate greed. So we can see that with the Wall Street, uh, the Occupy movement in the United States and Podemos in Spain. And populists have been quite successful at bringing about change, even if they've never actually taken office. And, you know, a good example is, is UKIP. UKIP were never actually successful in forming a parliamentary majority and becoming a government in the UK's constitutional setup. But they did essentially bring about Brexit. They did force both Labour and the Conservatives to confront the EU issue, which they had traditionally tried to suppress. Populists can also be quite good at making politicians just more accountable. They make politicians account for their decisions and justify them. Maybe there are no alternatives, but maybe the politicians should be much more clearer. They should explain why, and they should be aware of the challenges, and they should make greater efforts to explain to uh, groups that they have long ignored. So populism can sometimes be an emancipatory force. It can reintroduce conflict back into democratic politics. And in turn, it can allow previously neglected groups and marginalized voters to begin to re-engage with political life and to make policymakers consider them. So that, I think that's the, the good side of populism. But what is negative populism then, if this is good populism? Okay, so... Populism, the, the bad side of populism is it can create tensions within democratic communities to which there are often no answers to. And this can be particularly the case when a populist leader always claims that the general will of the people is uh, not being implemented. The elites can never, ever do enough for the populists to appease them. The problems can never truly be addressed if a, a populist leader is quite clever. And so what we can see is democratic societies begin to spiral into cycles of disillusion and democratic tension. In general, populist rhetoric can make it quite difficult to foster tolerance. So I said before, they cast the idea of the true people and anyone who's not part of them is therefore false. In a normal democratic society, we say, well, there's a majority and there's a minority. We don't pass judgment on whether which side is right or wrong. We just say more people voted that way over the other. Populists don't do that. So it can be sometimes hard to foster uh, tolerance between these two different groups. And that can sow deep divisions and mistrust within a political community. But the biggest problem with populism when it goes really badly wrong is that it can begin to promote what 
is called in liberal democracy. So the word democracy originates from the Greek word of demos, meaning the people, and kratos, meaning rule, to give us a definition of rule by the people. Now, liberal democracies are built upon this idea of rule by the people with the idea that the power of the government and the power of the majority should be constrained to ensure a range of loosely understood liberal values, such as tolerance, pluralism, multiculturalism, human rights, accountability, transparency, and the rule of law. Now, authoritarian populists promote illiberal democracy. And what we mean by this is that when the populist leaders become elected by a majority, they claim that majority is the source of their legitimacy, and they then engage in policies that begin to circumvent and suppress minority rights and begin to break down the ideas of pluralism and tolerance within a state. So this can include through dismantling checks and balances within the Constitution, through preventing other political parties from being able to have a fair say or been able to campaign or maybe even run for office. It can be through eroding parliamentary procedure and it can be through um, challenging the courts, challenging the independence of the courts by, for example, replacing judges with political representatives. And what the goal of a liberal democracy is, is to promote an extreme form of majoritarian democracy, which rejects minority rights and pluralism and seeks to amend the constitution and amend the rules of the political game to ensure that there is always the people are always the permanent majority. And so those that have taken power never really have any kind of real competition. So they're still trying to claim that they're a democracy, but they're not uh, being tolerant towards minority groups. So they're simply using democracy as a way of legitimizing essentially their, their remaining in power. The other problem of populism is that it can also eventually result in all the problems that populists often point out about the elites. So once a populist leader takes office, they can engage in corruption and clientelism. Uh, as I said, populist leaders have no problem with them being the elites, and they have no problem with themselves engaging in that kind of behavior. And they'll often justify that in the name of the people. Of course, if you begin to dismantle all the checks and balances, you begin to suppress legitimate opposition, who is really going to challenge you when you start engaging in corrupt behavior? You Essentially, you've completely upended the whole system that's designed to stop you engaging in that kind of irresponsible behavior. Now, I would like to look at a practical example of populism, and I think that looking at Eastern Europe and this notion of illiberal democracy that started in Hungary and has cemented itself in Hungary and Poland is a good place to start. Can we explore this a bit? Yeah, so Poland and Hungary are good examples um, in Europe right now of a shift towards illiberal democracy. And the idea of illiberal democracy originates in Hungary. So the right-wing populist government of Hungary is led by the Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who is the leader and one of the founders of the Fidesz political party. So Hungary only really became a democracy after the fall of the Soviet Union. And Viktor Orban um, would become Prime Minister in 1998, leading a parliamentary coalition. 
Um, but in the 2002 general election in Hungary, uh, Fidesz would be the largest party. They won the most seats. However, they didn't win enough to form a majority, and therefore they were beaten by a coalition of the other political parties. And in response to this, Viktor Orban claimed that the nation cannot be in opposition. And what he meant by this was that the people were the people who voted for Vedetse, and they couldn't be in opposition. So it's then that idea that when the populists are lose, it's the, the game is rigged, it's not fair. And in 2006, Vedetse would then again lose, and this would result in riots. From there, Fidesz would begin to transform itself into a populist party, fueled by the riots, but also political scandals that occurred in Hungary um, in the late 2000s. And as a result, Fidesz were able to claim that the government of Hungary had begun to declare war upon its own people. So here we have the image of, of populism. Fidesz and Orban represent true Hungarians on the one hand, and the Hungarian socialist government is presented as a corrupt elite to ex exploit and repress the true Hungarian people. So in 2010, Fidesz won the general election and formed the government with Viktor Orban as prime minister. And what they had first, one of the first things they did was exploit their two-thirds majority within the parliament due to a disproportionate electoral system to begin a campaign of constitutional amendments. So from there, they began to introduce some constitutional amendments, which included changing the rules on electing judges, allowing Fidesse to choose, because they anticipated that the Constitutional Court of Hungary would be uh, in opposition to Fidesse at some point in time. They then moved to reduce the jurisdiction of the courts um, reducing their ability to review the constitutionality of any laws regarding budgets and taxations. Um, and then they went on to amend the constitution once more to increase the number of judges on the constitutional court. And what this did is it allowed Fidesz to essentially appoint seven judges to the court of 15 judges um, who were pro-Fidesz. So it helped them increase their majority on the court. And this made the Constitutional Court of Hungary toothless in response to uh, the government. So once they rendered the courts harmless, they went on to then capture the Electoral Commission of Hungary, which in turn prevented um, civil action groups from seeking referendums on Fidesz's constitutional changes and policies. So they went out of their way to suppress the opportunity for minority groups to uh, engage in politics. They then went on to introduce new rules around the regulation of media, which began to have a chilling effect on anti-Fidesse media. And they were, in doing so, they began to aid pro-Orban media outlets. An estimate suggests around 80% of media in Hungary is now pro-Orban. Now, once a populist gets in power like Viktor Orban, they can't be seen to have defeated the elites because that wouldn't fuel their movement. They would need they, what they need is the elite to continue to exist to in order to justify their actions. 
So what Victor Orban did once he got in power and he amended the constitution to dismantle the courts and the media, he found new elites that were actually secretly preventing the Hungarian government and secretly repressing the true people of Hungary. And so over the last 10 years, he's blamed the EU, he's blamed uh, Islam, he's blamed George Soros, he's blamed the Jews, he's blamed members of the LGBT community, he's blamed the Central European University. And what he's tried to do is create this idea that migration uh, is an elite-sponsored phenomena, and it's designed to threaten the true Hungarian people. So he's used state propaganda to spread uh, narratives and pro-Orban or and pro-Orban organizations to create this idea that the true Hungarian people are under threat from migration, and he's been very successful in doing that, and that's helped fuel his time and power. So after 12 years of being in office, Viktor Orban was able to uh, still secure 54% of the popular vote in the recent uh, general election. And even though he's now the longest serving European leader, he is still trying to find new uh, elites seeking to undermine populists. So in a very controversial speech recently, he said that um, Hungary was under threat from demographic changes fueled by a Western or leftist beliefs in multiculturalism and transgenderism. And he claimed that true Hungarians are not a mixed race and they do not want to become a mixed race. Yeah, I find it interesting that populism in Eastern Europe is very much a response to the way that post-communist liberalism arose. It seems that populism is centered on this idea of saving the culture in Eastern Europe and a sort of continuation of the struggle against communism. I will now heavily borrow from this wonderful article I read by Ivan Krastev and Stephen Holmes on the issues. Firstly, post-communist liberalism was seen as a golden bullet in Eastern Europe. The revolutions were revolutions for catching up to the West and not revolutions of new ideas. When there wasn't the sudden success, it was felt that liberalism needed to ensure, and when liberal economics were exploited by a corrupt oligarchy, contrarianism, of course, arose. Ideas began to arise that liberalism was not the only path, and that it was arrogant for this ideology to assume that it was a sort of normative destination in an only way. This morphed into a call to dismantle liberal institutions, which were labeled as foreign constructs by the populace, in order to discredit them for their own abuses of power. Hence, an idea of asserting traditional values in response to this foreign ideology of liberalism arose. In reality, of course, it was an excuse to remove free courts, free press, etc. Liberalism was labeled a foreign invader, which could be scapegoated for all of Eastern Europe's problems and could be used to legitimize abuses of powers by appealing to national sovereignty and thus ignoring democratic and liberal institutions. Sovereignty became central, and sovereignty is defined as resisting foreign institutions, including this ideology of liberalism. Yeah, so I think the part of the issue was is that when, these, when Poland and Hungary and other Eastern European countries became liberal democracies, 
they had a bit unrealistic expectations about what being a, a liberal democracy would mean for them. They kind of thought that it would be, uh, like you said, like a magic bullet, a cure for all their problems. And actually, it, it wasn't. And it's interesting that both the Law and Justice Party, who were the populist organization in Poland, and Fidesce in Hungary, have both been in power at some point in time. And it's almost as if that once they lost power, they wanted it back and they didn't care uh, um, about you know the idea that in a liberal democracy, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. The pendulum of power swings between different organizations. Yeah, connected to this is also the role of free movement in immigration. After the communist revolutions, for the first time in history, the victors of the revolution, instead of the losers, were the ones that fled. Initially, leaving before the revolutions during communist times was seen as a treasonous betrayal of one's nation. But now that the revolution happened, that did not make sense anymore. Those that created liberalism did not want to wait decades more for the fruits of their struggles. They had access to the West, and they wanted good lives now, and so left for where that good life would be found. However, they thus left a void at home to be filled by populists. Here, the losers, illiberals, could basically take back over. Likewise, as the country falls deeper into illiberalism, it becomes even less likely that smart, educated individuals will come back. Subsequently, this demographic collapse heightens fears of immigration, and this fear of loss increases a breeding ground for populism, especially this right-wing populism. And all of this is exacerbated by the EU's free movement, because as barriers fell, it became even easier for these liberal revolutionaries to leave, and easier for illiberal populists to take over back home. Meanwhile, as Eastern Europeans move west, Western populists exploit fears that Western Europeans are being replaced. Ironically, thus, a central tenant of the EU becomes the creator of its current struggle with populists throughout. Mm, yeah, so populists, like Victor Orban's recent speech, is talking about demographics, and he's essentially creating this idea that true Hungarians choose to live in Hungary, they choose to breed with Hungarians, they are... Because they choose to breed, they have to be uh, heterosexual. They can't be members of the LGBT community in that mindset. And they promote good family values. So it's pulling upon kind of cultural conservatism there. I think, though, when you're saying about you know liberals leaving, it is a very difficult situation because on one hand, it kind of symbolizes how there is this weak commitment to liberal democracy from day one on both sides those that really supported it and those just kind of thought they were going to get wealthy from it. Because liberal democracy is very difficult to maintain. Democracies are fragile things, and a liberal democracy is even more fragile because you need to tolerate dissent. You need to tolerate periods when you're not in power. And it's taken, you know, some political organisations, you know, 20, 30, 50 years to sometimes get ahead around that idea. Um, you know, a good comparison could be, for example, the experience of the UK Labour Party. So the UK Labour Party um, was very much in favour of democratisation at the turn of the 20th century, uh, because democratisation was felt it would fuel the success of the Labour Party. But eventually the Labour Party was voted out of office. And in 1932, when they got voted out, 
the party became very divided about whether democracy and the constitution should uh, they should follow that route or whether they should go down a more kind of Marxist rebellion route. And that was a big, sharp divide. And it was only when they got to the Second World War when they realized, do you know what? This is better than all the alternatives where they stood and fought for it. So I think the, the challenge is, is that liberal democracy requires a huge amount of commitment on both sides. And I feel with you know some of the Eastern European countries that that commitment hasn't has been as strong and hasn't had the time to develop. People haven't had the patience for it. Well, that was everything I had planned for our discussion today. I think we had a very interesting and fruitful talk about populism, and this will be a good basis upon which to build next week when we explore the ways in which populism affects the EU constitutional order. Thank you, Robert. And I also want to thank our listener. I wanted to tell him that he has indeed invited to next week's episode, and I think he or she will definitely enjoy it. So thank you, and have a good rest of your day, everyone.